Good morning. This is one of those weeks where it has been very difficult to keep our eyes above the waves, has it not? But our hope is in God. Our hope is not in me providing you answers what is going on in this world. But we know that evil is great, and we know that Jesus reigns. And we look forward to his return, not to escape the world, but to see his face. That is our blessed hope, that we might see him face to face. And so, um, that's our hope. So we pray for 13 families. I put 13 flags out to remind ourselves to pray for those hurting families. And we often forget there's 200 Afghan families. They're going through the same devastation that we are. And Haiti and New Orleans and Lebanon and the turmoil around the world. But we have the answer and the hope in Jesus Christ. History is filled with the stories of heroes, men and women who faced great challenges, rose to the occasion, and changed the course of history. Alexander the Great conquered Greece, the Persian Empire, Egypt, and then it is said he wept. (laughs) There was nothing else to conquer. Hannibal, the great general from Carthage, rode elephants into battle. Joan of Arc, the great military and French heroine who was burned at the stake. Admiral Lord Nelson, whose bravery during the Battle of Trafalgar preserved the English Empire at the cost of his own life. James Bowie, the great plainsman who gave his life at the Alamo. Douglas MacArthur, who returned to save the Pacific. These are names from world history. And we've embellished their stories over time, but we still tell their stories. The Bible is full of the stories of great heroes as well. There's Joshua, commander of the, of, of, the, of the tribes as they entered into the land given to them by God. Gideon is 300 men. Samson, who killed, what, a, a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Daniel spent a night in a lion's den. Nehemiah, who was just a cupbearer, food taster to make sure the king didn't die became the contractor for the walls of Jerusalem. And don't forget Paul, who endured the anger of the ancient world to be able to tell the gospel to people who had never heard. Many moons ago, that's a long time ago, we spent a whole year, 52 sermons, telling the story of God through 52 different heroes of the faith. I I loved that series. It it turned out a lot better than I thought it might. And it was difficult at that point to limit the heroes we would talk about. We had to leave a lot of them out. And so this morning we're going to launch a new series called The Invisibles. For the next eight weeks at least, maybe ten, we'll see how it goes. We're going to explore the lives of some of the supporting characters the people behind the scenes in the scriptures. They don't make anyone's top 10 list of Bible heroes. 
So in this series, I want to go beyond some of these obvious people and, and figure out what the Bible has to say about these few characters that I think deserve some accolades and some attention, but they never get it. These people did incredible things, but just because they weren't as famous or as a, as a Moses or a Paul, they rarely get pulpit time. So we're going to devote an entire sermon to eight or maybe ten of these invisible heroes. I blame youth ministry. They asked this question. All right, here we go. We listen. In preparing this series, I mean, I went through the list. I came up with about 50 sermons that we could do. We could do a whole year just on invisible people. We won't do that. People like J.L., the wife of Heber, who helped defeat the, the armies of Canaan. How did she do that? Uh, it's a lovely story. You should use and read this story for Halloween sometime. She drove the tent peg through the, the skull of the general Sisera while he was asleep. Then there's the, there's the general, or I'm sorry, the, there, there's that nameless armor bearer who refused to kill the king, Saul, as he was basically mortally wounded. There was Ahimelech, the priest of God, who fed David and his starving troops from, from food in the temple, of the, the tabernacle. There was Abishag, another unsung hero. She had the task of being David's nursemaid in assisted living. What about that group of believers who lowered Paul over the wall in Damascus so he could escape? And then there's Epaphroditus, the messenger from the church at Philippi, who delivered gifts to Paul while he was in a Roman prison. No fancy names, no marquee headlines. They didn't have press clippings. They didn't, you know, no glory. And pretty much no sermon ever about any of them. And that's not going to change. We're not going to do any of those people. <laughs> if you want to know who we're going to do, go to the website. There's a bar at the top that says sermon series, and you can see who we're going to do. I'm not telling you. Unless you read the update every week, and then you'll get it. But we are going to explore common, ordinary people who were faithful to God when it counted. And in spite of their lack of fame, they had an essential role to play in the outworking of the story of God. And God noticed them because that's what God does. He notices. God has always chosen the small and the insignificant and the invisible to us to confuse the mighty. And God has chosen to use ordinary people to confound the wise of this world. And he does the same today. In a world of superstar athletes, musicians, actors, pastors, God still uses fortunately simple and invisible people to carry out his mission. Nobody knows their names. But without them, the work of God in this world would be incomplete. I call them heroes because through what they did or the way they lived, they impacted the story of God and brought great joy to his heart. Because you see, among the Noahs and the Abrahams and the Moseses and the Pauls and the Peters, it's too easy to miss the invisible stories behind the scenes but they left a priceless legacy. There is something very special about ordinary people doing extraordinary things.
an American hockey team. 1980. Defeated the greatest hockey team assembled. Or a small boy that crushed a nine-foot giant named Goliath. And we love their stories and we can learn from each one. And this series, if it does nothing else, let it underscore in your own mind that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. All of it. But the question asked is, why are we doing this right now? Well, to be honest, I think maybe we just need a change of pace, right? Something a little lighter in our lives. And I want to stick closely to the text because it is the text which changes life. And most importantly, I want to drive home three lessons. And I'm going to tell you right now what these three lessons are. So I guess you can go on vacation for the next eight weeks because you've learned the lessons if you get this. But I don't, I, I don't really recommend that. Three truths that I hope we learn and then live out together through this series. Number one, the lessons we hope, I hope we learn, we are God's invisibles. It's a series about us in reality. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. If you have your Bibles, you might want it. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1 for a, for a little bit here before we get back to, well, you know the passage we're going to, right? Because I told you to look it up. 1 Corinthians 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Paul says, all right, folks, think back to what you were like. Where were you doing? What were you like when, when you came to know Christ as Savior? He says God chooses the weak things. He uses the lowly things, the despised things. Things is us, people, weak people, lowly people, despised people, people invisible to the world. And God made a choice. And the choice he made is to use the people the world would never choose. Called there refers to, to our position in the world when, when we came to Christ. Not many of us came from the, from the high, upper-level, educated class. Not many of them came from, from what we would say would be good breeding. He says, hold up a mirror to your church. He, this is to the Corinthian church, okay? okay. Say, so take a look, what do you see? And he says, if we're honest, you don't see a lot of impressive people. They saw ordinary men and women from undistinguished backgrounds whose lives had been utterly transformed by Jesus Christ. That's who they were. You see, it was never God's intention to take an equal number of each social class and put them in the church and blend them together. It's not true that God populates the church from the upper classes and sprinkles in a few from the lower classes. In fact, the opposite is much closer to the truth. God populates his church with the rejects of the world, and he sprinkles a few wealthy and powerful people into the mix. But God prefers the losers, the invisibles. God deliberately chooses the forgotten of the world, and he prefers the company of the poor. He loves the uneducated, the foolish, the addicted, the broken, the downcast, the imprisoned. Now, I just thought of this. 
It's not good to, to, to just think of things and then actually say them. But if you're a student, this doesn't mean you, you're not supposed to get your education, okay? That's not what's going on. Do not make that application. Moms and dads, I did not say that this morning. All I'm saying is God specializes in saving those, bringing to faith those who the world thinks are nothing. So if we understand that that truth, there's great hope for us. Because as last I checked, I don't think any of us got an invitation to Martha's Vineyard this summer, right? I don't we're not the movers or the shakers. Nobody's walked the red carpet at the Academy Awards. We're not Hollywood A-listers. We're part of Team Invisible. And God specializes in saving people who are just like us. Why? Well, that answer, the answer to that question leads me to the second lesson that I hope we will learn. And that is this. Number two, invisibles boast only in God. Verse 27, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. The purpose he chooses us, because we don't have anything to boast about. You're not in this church because of who you are. You're not in this church because who you were before you came to know Christ. You're here because of what Jesus Christ did for you and what he is currently doing within your life. I think back to the words of Isaiah 55, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And Isaiah teaches us something that's very important. God is different. He's different from us. Think about that. He's different in how he thinks. He's different in what he does. He, does not, he, he, he doesn't do what we expect him to do because he just thinks completely differently from us. He nullifies the mighty by using the weak. He nullifies the proud by using the humble. He nullifies the wise by using the simple. He nullifies the professional by using the blue collar. God's nullification demonstrates how clearly he is different from us. This truth as elementary as it seems, is actually very important if you want to have a healthy Christian worldview. Our God stands alone. He is different. He is not required to do what we think He ought to do. He is holy and sovereign and absolutely free to do whatever He pleases. He can humble the proud anytime He chooses. He knows how to bring down an NBA superstar. And he knows how to humble a talk show superstar. He has the power to stand against them. Therefore, because that's who we serve as invisibles, we will boast in God alone. Alone. Third lesson we need to learn is that the world is changed forever when God calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We're going to see a bunch of, a lot of people you've never maybe even heard of who changed the world 
because God stepped in. You see, the church at Corinth had to have been included a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life. If you read the book, you know there were former idol worshipers. They had common merchants. They had converted slaves and Jewish believers. They had people who used to be a temple prostitute in their church. They had middle-class families of all kinds of varieties. This, this isn't a power church, this church at Corinth. It isn't a gathering of the high and mighty who just come together, you know. And No, this is a church that's primarily middle class, lower class, with a few wealthy and powerful sprinkled in. And that's how God builds his church. And when he does that, he confuses the wise and the strong. are like, who are these people? Sometimes we think, uh, we should pray for this person. If they would just come to Christ, God could really, you know, use them and fix things. And it's like, that's, that's so ridiculous. God doesn't need the strong. He doesn't need the well-positioned. He doesn't need the wealthy. Because God can do what God's going to do. And so in this series, we're going to be exploring the lives of men and women in the Old Testament and in the New Testament whose stories really continue to shape our lives and our thinking today. But yet, until this moment, perhaps, they've been invisible to us. When we think about church, we think only of, you know, the history of the church and the great men and women of faith. We think of Peter and John, and we think of Mary and Calvin and Luther and Spurgeon and a Rick Warren, or a Francis Chan, or a MacArthur, or a Stanley, either one, take your pick. Furtick, Graham, take your pick. And we forget about the countless unsung heroes who are only known to God, and yet they faithfully served him. Do you know the names of the people teaching our children this morning? What about the folks who made the coffee? Who made the coffee? Do you know who counts the offering week in, week out? You know, these and many others are faces. You know, they might not get recorded in some annual report or in the annals of church history, but they are precious because of their faithful service. People like Paul mentions in Romans 16, and Andronicus, and Amphiletus, and Junius, and Urbanus, and Stachus, and Apelles, and the household of Aristobulus. And 22 other people he mentions at the end of the most glorious book ever written. And the world sees these people as invisible, but Jesus sees them as an essential part of what he's doing in the world and in the church. So I hope we're encouraged through this series. God wants to use each of us to accomplish an extraordinary work for the kingdom. But before you get, a, get down that path too much, let me define extraordinary work of the kingdom, all right? What does that mean? Because it probably doesn't mean what you're thinking it means or what you think I think it means. How do we each change the world? Well, for most of us, the most extraordinary thing in the work of the kingdom is going to be found in the ordinariness of life. Consider two texts. 1 Timothy 5.8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Whoa. As a believer, 
You're to provide for your family. That is rather mundane. You're supposed to go to work. But it's also very invisible. And if you don't, you're worse than an unbeliever. You know, you may think you're going to do extraordinary work for the kingdom. But if you're faithful to your family, you're changing the world. And if you neglect to care for your family, you're worse than an infidel. No better than a pagan. And how many pastors fall into that category? Oh, you think they're uh, serving God, serving God, serving God. You know? Second passage, 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Make it your ambition. Here's your, it is. Here's your goal. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Whoa. You should mind your own business. Oh, it's probably not said that way. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. Before Paul launches into this discussion on future things, which is right next in 1 Thessalonians 4, he reminds them, just stay grounded in how you're living today. How often we forget that the way most people change the world is to live a quiet life. Take care of your business. Show up for work one day every day. See, it is the invisible things of life that God will use to change the world. He uses the ordinary to do extraordinary. So that's where we're headed for the next couple of months. I want to explore perhaps some, some corners or some places in the Scripture we haven't looked at in a while. And I hope we have some fun learning something about some invisible characters. So are you ready to get started? Character number one. It's a short character. Don't worry. Today's invisible character is Zelophehad's daughters. Zelophehad. I have practiced that for a week. <laughs> Did you know... I won't give away my secret. You can go to YouTube and say Zelophehad, whatever. Oh, shoot. Zelophehad and pronounce it, and it'll teach you how to pronounce it. Zelophehad. There's several, depending on where in the world you're from, but this is Zelophehad's daughter. So we're going to begin our first invisible with a father of five girls, no sons. His name is Zelophehad, and he's dead. He died. It's a short story. <laughs> Numbers 26. Did you find it? How many? Come on. Did you find Zelophehad? Yeah. Numbers 26, verse 33. Numbers 26, 33. In the context here, Moses and Eleazar are conducting a census following a plague that had killed 24,000 um, Israelites. We're actually going to look at, it's the rebellion of Korah. And we're gonna, actually going to look at Korah. He's our, he's our guy next week. But I guess, you know, forethought we should have flipped these, but he's a longer story, so it, yeah, it's okay. God instructed them he, to count all the males 20 years and older. And so we'll figure out what's going on with that next week. But in Numbers 26, they list five daughters of the clan of Manasseh. 26:33. Zelophehad, son of Hefer, had no sons. He had only daughters whose names were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. I, I looked those all up too, but there's nothing strange about their pronunciations. It's pretty basic. 
Okay, first observation, he, it doesn't just say he had five daughters. He names them, all five of them, every time, individually. Wander down to Numbers 27, verse 1. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. The stage is set. What did these girls do, these five sisters? Well, we know this. They lived during a time when the eldest son inherited everything. Daughters didn't have much role in society. And as Israel is preparing to enter the promised land, he had been instructed by God how they're supposed to handle inheritance. How do you divide up the land? But here is a family whose father has died, who has left only daughters, and daughters couldn't inherit. So now what? These sisters decide... This isn't quite right. What are we going to do? How are we going to live, to be honest? Dad's dead. His brother, who's going to get the property? We don't get the property. What, how are we going to survive? And so they had nothing and would be left destitute. But they didn't just take that. They didn't just say, oh, well, we don't know what to do. Or they didn't go march. They didn't go, you know, burn things down. They, they, they went to Moses. They didn't grumble. They didn't complain. But what they did do was going to change the law moving forward. They armed themselves with some courage and some humility, and they remembered, you know, God is good. And so what are we going to do? Verse 2 of Numbers 27, they came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance of tent of meeting and said, this is a big deal. They got them all the bigwigs there. Who, um, our father, they said, died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. So Zelophehad, he's a righteous man. And we'll, we'll, the, the rebellion of Korah was a bad thing. We're going to look at that in detail next week. He didn't participate in that. Everyone who did, so he, that's not why he died. Now, he died because, you know, he probably didn't support Moses, you know, so that whole generation had to die. So he had his, he had his own issues. But he, the rebellion of Korah was not one of them. He just died in the wilderness. And he didn't have a son. And so these sisters come before the most significant leaders in the history of Israel, Moses and Eleazar and the rest of them. And what did they ask for? Verse 3. Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan? Because he had no son. Give us property among our father's relatives. What are they asking for? Justice. That's all they want. Give me some justice. This kind of ties into our topic from the last month. This was a unique situation. This was a situation which the law had not specifically addressed. It can't address everything. The tribes of Israel were each given land as an inheritance. Levi was given cities, not land, because God was to be their inheritance. 
But that land was everything to the family moving forward. They belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. So as they divided Manasseh up among the clans, you know, Zelophehad got his portion. But who is he going to give it to upon his death? And so they had no sons. He had no sons, so the sons had to do the inheriting. So now what are they going to do? Some say that each sister said their thing. I don't know. I don't know how you tell that, but somebody smarter than me said they all said something, and uh, I don't know. But they have no land, and their basic plea was, how are we going to survive? So they come to Moses, and they stand there together, and they speak for their own rights. And Moses realizes, you know, I, I don't have the answer to this question. Verse, verse 5, so Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, what Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. God took their side. He clarified what was now going to become the pattern for, for Israel's history and the law moving forward. Verse 8, so the Israelites say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, okay, well, I might as well deal with some more details here. Give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of law for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. Do not underestimate the role of the land in Bible history and in Israeli culture. Genesis begins with humans living in the land in the presence of God, divinely gifted land. Revelation ends with, with us living where? In a city, in the presence of the Lord in a fully renewed land. And everything in between is a development of God's people in the land, out of the land, in the land, out of the land, the land isn't just relegated to a map. It's not just some, some scenic background. See, to inherit land was to inherit a gift of honor and provided for your long-term support as a family. It meant meeting the financial needs and, the, and, and, and higher standing for your family and the culture. And the whole system is set up so that one child inherits. Otherwise, eventually, everybody's just going to have a little, you know, a little square. So you've got to keep the family land, and you take care of the family that way. Now, Zelophehad's daughters, they come up one more time in the book of Numbers. Because what's going to happen if that one daughter from the tribe of Manasseh marries a boy from, pick a tribe, Zebulun? Who, which tribe's going to get the land? Well, let's figure it out. Numbers 36, verse 2. When they said, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land as an inheritance to the Israelites by lot, he ordered you to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. Now suppose they marry men from other Israelite tribes. Then their inheritance will be taken away from our, our ancestral inheritance and added to that of the tribe into which they marry. Ooh, it gets confusing. So part of the inheritance allotted to us will be taken away. And it goes on. I'm not going to read it all. Basically, it says, you really need to ask them to marry within their tribe. That solves the problem. Marry within the tribe because land can't pass from one tribe to another tribe 
Otherwise, it's going to be a mess. And so if they married outside their tribe, then it, who gets the land? Moses says, that's not right either. So tell them to marry within the tribe. So that's the end of the story. So what do we learn from them? What are a couple of lessons that, I, that these five sisters teach us today? Number one, I learned from them, is they brought about a permanent change in the law, a clarification. They are on the class of invisibles, but they brought national legal change to the nation. They are the hero moving forward. They are the heroes moving forward of all sisters with no brothers. And what these five sisters did not only changed their lives, but it changed the law moving forward. Because they argued that their father's inheritance was in jeopardy over something about which he had no control. He didn't follow the rebellion of Korah, for which he could have been punished and lost his inheritance. He just died. And he didn't have any sons. What could he have done to change that? Nothing. So why should his name be forgotten? And why should his family suffer for something that was completely out of their control. And they sought justice and that God brought justice to their situation. And this is, it happened while, while Moses was still living. Because the law can't account for every situation. Does that mean it's deficient? No. I would say to you that God can't account for every single issue. So he provides it some in this direct revelation and the questions that remain, what do you do? You ask, what is God like? And the sister said, he's a God of justice and goodness. And then you ask, what is just? And what is right? 90% of the will of God in your life is between your ears. Get the revelation and figure it out. Seek the Lord, read His Word, get some wise counsel, and then make a decision. I think that's what's modeled here at the end of Numbers. Zelophehad's daughters brought permanent change to the way people thought, really to society, and they teach us kind of how to make decisions. How do you, how do you determine? Second thing they model to us is how to pursue change. Were they on the wrong side of justice? Yeah. Yet they didn't victimize themselves. They didn't despair. They didn't attempt to manipulate the situation. They were women who had the courage to go to the leadership and say, this is what's going on. They didn't just sit around and gripe and complain. Their behavior that was good and righteous, you know, it, it, it's remembered. And these five women armed themselves with some courage and humility and faith in the character of God who is good. And it seems to me they had to have known who God is. And what did they know? I think they knew what David would later write is in Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. They knew them to be true, even though they hadn't been written. Their call for justice was for justice. And God listened to them, and he nodded in agreement. 
You see, God is interested in justice, and he heard these women. It matters to God that we deal in justice. Therefore, it ought to matter to us that we deal in justice. And when you stand up for justice, whether it's at school or on the streets, at work, we really stand up for what God is doing and wants to do in this world. And we live in a very unjust world. Therefore, there is always going to be plenty for us to do. There is so much injustice out there. And because there's so much, you and I don't have to do the same thing. I can work on this injustice. You can do that injustice. There's so much out there. We could all be busy for 24 hours a day and not fix everything. But people of justice will rarely be rewarded because this is an unjust world. And we ought to just treat each other fairly. But it's also time for us to start making a difference as the people of God. And today we are so far from that American dream of liberty and justice for all. But we can make a difference, even as an invisible. We cannot do everything, but we can do something. Stand up for what is right. Stand up for justice, because then God will be standing with you. These daughters, these sisters begin our journey through some of the hundreds of invisibles in the Bible. I go back to 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul says, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. He used a bunch of sisters with no social standing so that no one may boast before him. I often this week went back to a verse I memorized in college. See, Bible memory is really a good thing. It teaches me something about these five sisters. Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, that I am the Lord who exercises righteousness and justice and loving kindness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. These sisters knew that what was happening to them, it wasn't right. And they knew the character of him who wrote the law. And they said kindly and with grace to those in authority, they presented their case. I should say their names one more time. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirza. Tirza. And what does Jeremiah say about their actions? For I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, these things these sisters did. So we better know the God of the Bible. And we better follow him. For those of us who say, you know, it's well with my soul. We better be people who are standing for justice. Who are willing 
to be an invisible that will change the kingdom and change the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for these sisters. We thank you that in, in, in most of the world, this is an invisible church. And yet, that's just the kind of church you want to use to make a difference in the kingdom. And so I pray that we would boast in you, that we would know you as the good and great God. We would know your heart for righteousness and justice, that when we're right with you, we can listen to you. We can, we can listen to the shepherd of our souls and serve as you want us. Help us through this series to keep coming back to that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.